Okay, uh, praises be to overloving Abba. We're gathered once again to study his words and his commandments. Today we'll talk about Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel chapter 2 is all about the great statue that was in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So we left off last week discussing uh, Daniel chapter 1. We know that uh, Daniel, together with his three friends, were exiled to Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered the people of Judah. However, because of the help and guidance of Yahuwah Abba, what happened to Daniel and his three friends? They ended up being trained to serve at the palace to be a servant of the king. So that's where we left off after they finished their three years of training and they served now the palace of Nebuchadnezzar what happened? What disturbed King Nebuchadnezzar? Let's now open Daniel chapter 2 verses 1 down to 3. One night uh, during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed as they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply disturbs, that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. And so what happened to Nebuchadnezzar as we open Daniel chapter 2? The Bible says that he was disturbed. He could not sleep because of the dreams that he was having. And we call those kind of dreams nightmares, right? When you can't go to sleep because you're disturbed by your dreams. And so this dream was very, very imposing. It brought fear in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He could not sleep. And so what did he do? The Bible says Nebuchadnezzar summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers. These represent the council of the wise men. The wise men served uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And so if he needed advice concerning decisions he, need to make, he needs to make for the sake of the kingdom, he would turn to his wise men. And so the wise men were summoned by the king because the king wanted to know what the dreams meant. Because it's only then that he will be able to find comfort again and be able to sleep. And so uh, what happened when the wise men were summoned by the king? Daniel chapter 2 verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. And so the wise men were very confident. They told the king in Aramaic, long live the king, tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. So they were confident they could give the meaning of the dreams that King Nebuchadnezzar had. Uh, however, before we go on to what happens next, it, uh, it mentions here that... Uh, the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. It turns out, beginning in this passage, Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to Daniel 7, 28, unlike the other scriptures, which were written in Hebrew, right? Uh, from Daniel 2, 4 to Daniel 7, 28, these scriptures were written in Aramaic. And so the Old Testament, uh, most of it, in fact, 99.9% .9 of it is written in Hebrew. Daniel 2, to 4, uh, Daniel 2, 4 all the way to Daniel 7.28, was written in Aramaic. Perhaps the reason why is because in the subsequent passages, it speaks about the future of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles. 
the, the Bible speaks about the time of the Gentiles and after which Yahusha will come and establish the kingdom of Israel. So before Israel and its kingdom can be established here on earth, it's going to go through the time of the Gentiles first. And so associated with that idea, the time of the Gentiles is the vision or the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So he summons his wise men and he asks them, he tells them, demands from them that they explain the meaning of his dreams. And so the wise men said, tell us your dream and we will explain that to you. And so what was the king's response? In Daniel 2, 5 to 6, but the king said to the astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your, how, your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dream and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. And so the king uh, made sure <laughs> that his wise men understood the gravity of the situation. He told them, I'm being serious. If you don't tell me what the dreams mean, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be torn limb from limb. Not only you, but your houses are going to be destroyed as well. But if you're able to tell me the dream and what it means, then you will be blessed with wonderful gifts and honors. And so what did the wise men say? In verse 7, they said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream. And we will tell you what it means. And so they were confident they can tell the king the meaning of his dreams. However, what was actually being asked by King Nebuchadnezzar? Verses 8 down to 9. The king replied, I know what you are doing. You're stalling for time because you know I am serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. And so what was the king actually asking for? Not just the meaning of his dreams, right? What was he actually asking for as well? He was telling him, tell me what I dreamt, <laughs> right? So this is different. Remember Joseph, when he had to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh, right? Um, the dreams were given to him. He didn't have to figure out or determine what the dreams were. And so that was different because when the king tells you, for example, the king tells you what he dreamt, I mean, you can just make stuff up, right? You can say whatever you want. Oh, king, the meaning of that dream is this. You see, um, you are having nightmares because you're afraid that you might lose, a you lose your kids and you're thinking about your wife. You can make a lot of stuff up. But the king, he was serious. And so he wanted to know if the wise men were even qualified to tell him the meaning of his dreams and what would qualify them to tell the meaning of his, of his dreams. Well, they had to first tell him what his dream was about without him telling him, what is my dream about? If you can answer what my dream about, then you're qualified to tell me what the dream means. So the king is asking for two things. The dream, which of course nobody knows because only the king was the one who dreamt it, right? And number two, the meaning of his dreams. And so when the, the, the king 
made this clarification when he made himself very clear about what he wants, what did the wise men say? Uh, 10 to 11, the astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream. And they do not live here among people. And so the wise men, after hearing the king uh, tell them what he really wanted, what did they say? They said, king, that's impossible. There's no way we can know. Only the quote-unquote gods can know that. And the gods don't live here in amongst us. And so this is impossible, what you are asking. And so is the king pleased with that? 12 down to 13. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. Not so good for Daniel. I mean, they really have nothing to do with this, right? Um, because uh, the wise men uh, could not answer uh, what the king king was asking for the king was very upset very angry so much so what did he decree you're going to all be killed you're going to be executed not only you but everyone who works for the king including who daniel and his friends so we find ourselves we find daniel and his friends in a great predicament they're all going to be killed they're all gonna die because the king's dreams uh was not understood by his wise men. And so when Ariok, the commander, was sent to get Daniel and his friends to kill them, what happened? 14 and 16, when Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. Yes, Ariok, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Ariok told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. And so when Daniel found out that they were being summoned so that they can be killed, of course, he had to do something. It's a good thing Daniel was a man of wisdom. And so using his wisdom, he thought about the situation. And what did he do? He decided to go to the king himself and ask for more time. And so when he approaches the king, he tells the king, we're going to tell you what your dream means, but we need more time. And so that's a good tactic, right? Appeasing the anger of the king, because the wise men uh, prior to this, what did they say to the king? This is impossible, right? They said, this is impossible. Daniel at this time has no idea what the king was dreaming about and what the, the, dreamt, the dreams meant. However, he knows who can give him the meaning of that dream? Yahuwah Abba. And so instead of panicking and saying, this is impossible, Daniel places his hope and trust in Yahuwah. And with that confidence, he speaks to the king, give us some time so that we can understand what your dreams are all about. And so when Daniel was granted his request, and he goes home, what does he do? 
uh, 17 to 18. And Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. So what does Daniel do once he gets home? He calls his friends, his Hebrew friends, right? And what do they, what do, they do? Well, they ask God to show them mercy by telling them the secret, by telling them the dream and the meaning of the dream. So brethren, when we face an impossible situation, what should we do? Instead of panicking and instead of saying this is impossible, we should turn to Yahuwah Abba and ask him to show mercy and to give to us what we need concerning the problem that we face. It doesn't matter what your problem is. I mean, can you compare your problem with the problem of Daniel and his friends, right? And so they have now to figure out what the meaning of that dream is. And more, and more difficult than that, you have to figure out what the dream was in the first place, right? And so what do they turn to? Who do they turn to? They turn to Yahuwah Abba by means of prayer. And so when they pray to Yahuwah God, what happened that night? Let's read Daniel 2.19. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in the vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So what was revealed that night? The meaning of the dream and the dream itself in a vision. And so Yahuwah Abba responded right away. You know, when we pray to Yahuwah Abba concerning our problems, whatever they may be, sometimes he answers right away, right? Sometimes it takes maybe some length of time, maybe a month, a year, but then he answers. You know, sometimes Yahuwah may not be early, but he's always on time when it comes to responding to our needs. This was an emergency. Yahuwah knows that. And so what happens? That same night, Yahuwah God answered his prayer. And Daniel received a vision. And so what did he do? He praised God. You know what he said about God, which is very true concerning what's happening even today? Let's read the book of Daniel chapter 2, 20 to 23. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. And so when Daniel was praising Yahuwah Abba, what does he say about Yahuwah, which is relevant even during our time? The Bible says Yahuwah God is the one who controls the course of world events. And so Yahuwah will give permission. He permits events from taking place. He permits people to be voted in as a world leader or as a national leader. Yes, we have elections, right? But ultimately behind the scenes, who is the one orchestrating everything? It is Yahuwah. This is true, not just during the days of Babylon, but even during these last days. Nothing happens without the permission of Yahuwah Abba. 
And so he uses mighty people as instruments as well. He is the one who removes kings and presidents, and he is the one who sets up kings and presidents. Everything he allows to happen has a purpose because Yahuwah Abba has an eternal plan, an eternal purpose, and that will be fulfilled according to his sovereignty. And so what must we understand even during our time? We need to look at world events because it points us to a general plan, a plan of Yahuwah Abba. What also does the Bible reveal about Yahuwah Abba? He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. This is why even scholars who do not necessarily belong to God, they also possess knowledge that may be helpful for each and every one of us. And so we need to understand Yahuwah is in control of all things, especially the events in these last days. So he praises Yahuwah. That's the first thing Daniel does, right? When he got the vision, he praises Yahuwah Abba. And then what does he do next? 24, 25, then Daniel went in to see Ariok, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Ariok quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. And so what does Daniel do? He says uh, to Ariok, uh, whom, the, whom uh, Daniel says to him, don't kill the wise men, take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. So he's confident. And so he asks for an audience with the king. And so he was taken to the king. He speaks to the king. I have found uh, when he speaks to the king, what happens next? Let's read uh, Daniel 2, 26, 28. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belf, uh, Belfeshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dreams was, what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal uh, the king's secret. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. And so when he has the face-to-face -face with the king, Daniel reassures the king that the meaning of his dream only Yahuwah Abba can declare, right? And he reassures the king that God has revealed secrets to Nebuchadnezzar, which represents events that will take place in the future. So the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had are prophetic. They pertain to events that will take place in the near future and also the future that extend beyond that. And we're going to talk about that a little later on. And so what was the explanation of Daniel to the king? Daniel 2, 29 to 30, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, 
but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. And so Daniel tells us it's not because he's smarter or wiser than anyone else. And so we can see the humility of Daniel. Who does he always exalt? Who does he always praise? Who does he point people to? It is none other than God himself, Yahuwah Elohim. So he tells the king, look, what I'm going to tell you did not come from me. This comes from who? From Yahuwah Abba. We need to have that spirit of humility. Instead of getting praise for ourselves, we need to always take people and take them to Yahuwah. Praise Yahuwah. Praise Yahusha, not me. This is why of all the different Bible characters, there are really only two people who kind of stand out who no one can say anything bad about them besides Yahusha. And they were Joseph and Daniel. You know, they were really righteous and they stood out for doing what is right at all times. Nothing can be said against uh, Daniel. And so because of his humility, always pointing people to Yahuwah Abba, he succeeded in so many aspects in so many ways. So now he's going to tell the king his dream. Daniel 2, 31 to 33. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked, Clay. So that's the uh, the dream. So when Daniel was telling the king, this is what you dreamed about. I wonder what the king felt. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's it. <laughs> that's exactly what I dreamt, right? And so what was the, what, what, he, what did the king dream about? About a large statue. It, it wasn't just a large statue. There was something about it that made it awesome in appearance. Perhaps that's the reason why the king couldn't sleep. He needed to know what that meant. It was very imposing, dazzling. It was awesome in appearance. He needed to know what that meant. And so what was this large statue made of? It's made of a head made of pure gold, right? Uh, the chest and the arms is made of silver. And then the torso is made of brass. And then the, uh, thigh, the, uh, the thighs are made of iron. And then the uh, feet are made of iron and clay. That's the dream of uh, Daniel. Now, look at the statue. And do you notice something else besides the statue? I mean, what stood out in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is this really big statue right? But there's something also that kind of is in there, but it doesn't really stand out because it's so normal. What do you, what do you see? That's, it, that's also in the dream. You see anything? I mean, the statue itself is kind of weird, right? It's a, it's, it's a statue of a man, but it's composed of three different metals, or I mean, five different metals, or actually four different metals, Gold, silver, brass, iron, and then iron mixed with clay at the feet. What else stands out? Yeah, there was a stone. <laughs> there was a rock. 
What do you think that rock represents? Any ideas? So you have this big imposing statue and you have a rock, a small stone. What could that mean? Let's go ahead and look at the dream further. Daniel 2, 34, 35, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron, clay, and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like shaft on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And so when the dream shifts to the rock, not the statue anymore, this rock, where did it come from? It did not come from natural means. It was a supernatural rock because it was made not by human hands. If it's not made by human hands, who made it? Yahuwah Abba. And so this rock is something that is from Yahuwah that is given for a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, the Bible says that rock is going to break into pieces the statue. And after the statue is broken to pieces, it becomes a huge mountain and it fills the whole earth. So this is the dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has. It's about a statue, a large imposing statue and a rock, okay? And so now what is the meaning of the dream? What is the interpretation of this dream? And so let's go to Daniel chapter two, uh, 36 to 38. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion, power, might, and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Whether they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. And so when the dream was being interpreted by Daniel, going back to the statue, Remember, the statue is made of the head of gold. And according to Daniel, who is that head of gold? That is Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar was the king of a great kingdom. And this kingdom is the kingdom of Babylon. In Isaiah 14:4, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has seized the golden city ceased. The, Babel, the city of Babylon was also know, uh, known as the golden city. And if you still remember in Daniel chapter 1, Babylon took the gold out of Jerusalem, remember? Took the gold out of the temple and brought it to uh, Babylon. And so uh, Babylon represents an, a, a mighty empire, a mighty kingdom whose king was Nebuchadnezzar. And the way Babylon was ruled is what we call an absolute monarchy, a centralized form of government. He was in absolute control, unlike the other kingdoms that would come after the kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon would rule the earth, would rule the world from 605 BC to about 539 BC. And so in the statue that represents different colors or different metals, the first part, 
the one made of gold represents Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon. And when we look at the kingdom of Babylon, this is uh, what parts of the world they occupied. And so we know Babylon was a world power. Babylon was a world power and they conquered many nations, including the people of Judah. And so what happens after Babylon? This is where it becomes also in, uh, very interesting. The book of Daniel, when Daniel continues to interpret the dream in 239, after you, after Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. And so now we get an idea of what the statue represents, right? The statue represents kingdoms of men, right? Kingdoms which began with Nebuchadnezzar. And when we look at these kingdoms, um, they are kingdoms of the Gentile world. This is why those who look at this prophecy uh, describe the events of the statues as a timeline of the Gentiles when they will be in power. And so we have first Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. He ruled Babylon. And then Daniel says, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. That's because Nebuchadnezzar was the one who started it all. And when you look at the, uh, uh, the statue, you notice at the very top is gold. And then it becomes silver. And then it becomes brass. And then iron. And then iron and clay, right? What do you notice about the, the uh, series of metals when you go from top to bottom? In, in terms of preciousness, right? Which is, more, which is most precious? Gold, right? Gold is more, is more precious than silver. Silver more than, than brass. Brass more than iron. Iron more than clay. And so at the brass level, the next kingdom, well, that kingdom is going to conquer Babylon, right? And so what kingdom conquered Babylon in 539 BC? Well, according to uh, History.com in 539 BC, less than a century after its founding, the legendary uh, Persian king Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon. The fall of Babylon was complete when the empire came under Persian control. So which kingdom came after Babylon? Because they conquered Babylon. What kingdom was that? Persia. Yeah, Persia. And we know about uh, Cyrus. He was prophesied also in scripture. Uh, the Bible speaks about Nebuchadnezzar and that all the kingdoms were placed under his feet. Basically, Yahuwah God was the one who gave um, Nebuchadnezzar his authority as king. And so he subdued nations for the sake of Nebuchadnezzar. You can read that in the book of Jeremiah. However, Yahuwah God, like what the Bible says, he's in control of world events. He's the one who appoints and demotes kings as he sees fit. Included is who? Cyrus. Because Cyrus would play a pivotal role in punishing the Babylonians. What was the pivotal uh, purpose of King Cyrus? He would be the one God would utilize to set the people free from Babylon to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so Persia destroys Babylon. And so Persia becomes the next kingdom. So Babylon first, then Persia. But when you look at the statue, the silver represents the chest, right? The chest 
and also the two arms. And so what does that suggest? The two arms in the dream may have prophesied the empire's division between the Medes and the Persians. This is why the Persian Empire is also called Medo-Persia. And Medo-Persia, when they dominated the world, they it encompassed practically most of society uh, during that time. So Medo-Persia came into the scene from 539 BC to 331 BZ, representing the next kingdom that will rule the earth after Babylon. So we're talking about superpowers here. We're not talking about minuscule nations. We are talking about superpowers, those who at will can dominate the whole world. It started with Babylon, next came Medo-Persia. And after Medo-Persia, we have brass. I wonder what that brass represents. Well, let's go ahead and look at the book of Daniel chapter 2, 39. This is what it says. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. That's the second kingdom. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And so after the first two kingdoms, the second kingdom will be conquered by this third kingdom, one of bronze. I wonder who that was. Well, who was it that conquered Medo-Persia? You know who it was? Who could it be? Well, it was Alexander the Great, one of history's first true superpowers. The Persian Empire stretched from the borders of India down to Egypt and up to the northern borders of Greece, but Persia's rule as a dominant empire would finally be brought to an end by a brilliant military and political strategist, Alexander the Great, according to history.com. And when did this happen? Well, Medo-Persia Medo began to decline under the reign of Darius' son, Circe. Circe depleted the royal treasury with an unsuccessful campaign to invade Greece and continued with irresponsible spending upon returning home. Persia was eventually conquered by Alexander the Great in 331 BC. And so, uh, BCE. And what, what is its association with bronze? It turns out, led by Alexander the Great, Greece conquered the Medo-Persians Medo uh, with soldiers bearing bronze helmets, breastplates, shields, and swords. And Alexander the Great led Greece to conquer many nations. And Alexander the Great died very young, right? One of his laments was what caused him great grief and depression was he had no more lands to conquer. Right? That's how successful he was. No one could beat him. And so that's uh, Greece, the next great empire. So it started with Babylon to Medo-Persia and then to Greece. You notice the succession of uh, kingdoms. One conquers the next and then is conquered by the one upcoming, right? Babylon is conquered by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia is conquered by Greece. And so there's this continue continuity of kingdoms replacing one after another, okay? So Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then we have Greece. Next, we have iron, right? The uh, belly and the thighs are made of, uh, of iron. And so what is that? Who could that be? 
right? Well, let's go ahead and look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. So the Bible says there are four major kingdoms, right? The Bible says, finally, there will be a fourth kingdom. And so before Yahushua returns, there are four kingdoms. The last one is likened to iron. It says, finally, there will be a fourth kingdom. It doesn't say a fifth kingdom or a sixth kingdom, right? But a fourth kingdom, finally. And it's likened to iron because like iron, it breaks and smashes everything. And this empire, this kingdom would be the one to destroy or topple Greece. Who was that? I think you know what came after Greece, right? What kingdom came after Greece? Let's find out. The definitive Roman act occupation of the Greek world was established after the Battle of Actium, 31 BC, in which Augustus defeated Cleopatra VII, the Greek Ptolemaic queen of Egypt, and the Roman general Mark Anthony, and afterwards conquered Alexandria, 30 BC, the last great city of Hellenistic Greece. There are many dates that people put out there concerning when Rome actually conquered Greece, but I think this is the most definitive of them all. So third, let's say 31 BC. Rome conquers Greece and takes over as the next superpower. Okay. The key feature of this empire was its strength in warfare. Its strength was very destructive. This empire was characterized by its strength as iron, take note, is stronger than bronze, silver, and gold. When it comes to precious metals, gold comes first, then silver, bronze, then iron. When it comes to strength, however, it's the opposite. Right? So iron is stronger than bronze, silver, and gold. The Roman Empire was stronger than any of the previous empires. It crushed all the empires that had preceded it. Rome, in its cruel conquest, swallowed up the lands and the peoples that had been parts of the three previous empires and assimilated those lands and peoples into itself. It, however, was weakened by internal strife and moral decay. This empire went on for almost 500 years after the resurrection of Yahushua. So that's Rome. And when they were in power, they occupied so many lands. In 117 AD, this was the extent of occupation they had when we look at the geography of the world. So when we look at the next kingdom, after Babylon, Persia, and Greece, we know it is Rome. But notice that Rome, made of iron, is composed of the belly and also the two thighs. What does that tell you? Two thighs. It's going to be divided. The two legs imply that the empire will be divided into two parts. That's exactly what happened. The Roman Empire was divided in its eastern division with Constantinople as the capital and its western division with Rome as the capital in 364 AD. And so it was divided. And eventually it loses its world strength and world power. The last western emperor of Rome was deposed by the Goths in 476 AD. Yet the residue 
of Rome's strength continued until 963 AD. The influence of Rome still continues to this day as Rome has never ceased to exist. So when we look at our statue, we have the four kingdoms. Started with Babylon, next came Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece. Greece was conquered by Rome, but take note of this. Rome was never conquered at all, when you really think about it, because we still have Rome, right? It was never really completely conquered. But for the sake of argument, we'll say it was conquered in 476 AD. So we have four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, okay? And after this, what happens next? What does uh, the prophet Daniel explain? In Daniel chapter 2, 41 to 43, this is what it says. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And so what characterizes the Roman Empire? It is characterized by iron strength, but also iron mixed with something that you should not be mixing with iron. And that's called mixture, mixing things that cannot be mixed. When you mix ideas, for example, that do not belong to each other, for example, mixing the idea of Moses' teaching about Yahuwah as one true God and another idea about polytheism. When you mix the two, what do you get? You get a strange concoction called the Trinity, right? Mixing things that ought not to be mixed. The Roman Empire is known for its mixture. This is why when Constantine became the emperor, what did he do? He wanted to mix different cultures together and make it into one. Rome is known for its mixture. This is why, according to scholars, okay, the Roman Empire was characterized by division. It was a divided kingdom and deterioration. It was partly strong and partly brittle. Though Rome succeeded in conquering the territories that came under its influence, it never could unite the peoples to form a united empire. Take a look at what happened to Christianity and the paganism of Rome, right? In that sense, the people were a mixture and were not united because you cannot be truly united if you're mixing two things that should not be together. In that sense, people were a mixture and were not united. Other views of this mixture of strength and weakness are suggested. Letter A. The empire was strong organizationally, but weak morally, which is very true concerning the Roman Empire. Letter B, imperialism and democracy were united unsuccessfully. Letter C, government was intruded by the masses, mob rule. Letter D, the empire was a mixture of numerous races and cultures and religions. And so the Roman Empire was characterized by mixture and it, would not be surprising at all that when our King Yahushua comes 
he will find religions that encompass all religions made, made into one, like a united religion. And there are many movements today, for example, the Protestants and the Catholics are working together with Jews and they wanna form just one religion, one world religion that is mixture, mixing things that ought not to be mixed. Remember, Yahuwah is not about mixing. Yahuwah is about setting apart which is the opposite of mixing. When you set something apart, you make it holy. The work of Yahuwah is opposed to the work of the Roman Empire. Roman Empire is about mixing. Yahuwah is about setting apart, making holy. And so when Yahusha comes, we're going to find a world that is characterized by a lot of mixing. However, this is what uh, Daniel explains as he continues to interpret the dream, this time about the rock. Let's read uh, 244 to 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. And so what is the interpretation of the rock? According to Daniel, the, the rock is going to destroy and break the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold into pieces. Remember, the statue represents man's kingdom. It started with Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the Roman Empire, right? But all that is man's kingdom. Time will come when man's kingdoms will be destroyed. Destroyed by what? By the rock. What is this rock? It is a rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands. Brethren, we've studied all about the rock. Who was the rock that was smitten by Moses? Who was the rock that was spoken to by Moses? Who is the rock that is the foundation stone of the assembly? Who is that rock? None other than Yahusha. And so Daniel 2 not only speaks about the kingdoms of the world, it speaks about the coming of Yahusha. And what will Yahusha do? The Bible says Yahusha HaMashiach will destroy the statue. And once the statue is destroyed, if you notice in uh, verse 44, Yahuwah God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. A kingdom that will endure forever. Whose kingdom is that? That's God's kingdom. And who will bring this kingdom of God upon earth? Our king, Yahusha, right? And so when we look at the statue, um, the imposing and awesome, dazzling statue will be destroyed. And it will be destroyed by that unimposing rock. Right? This rock will destroy the entire statue to usher in the everlasting kingdom of Yahuwah Abba. However, um, when we look at this rock, we know that it will not destroy Nebuchadnezzar. It will not destroy Alexander the Great, right? So when Yahusha returns, who will, be, who will he be in direct contact with? 
who is he going to destroy directly? Because the whole statue, yes, represents the kingdoms of men. But when Yahusha returns, who will be in control and in power and will be destroyed? Let's go back to Daniel 2, 34 to 35. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like shaft on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And so when Yahusha returns, who will be in direct opposition with, with Yahusha? Bible says, right, it struck the statue on its feet. What is the feet composed of again? Iron and clay. And so when Yahusha returns, he will directly smash the feet of the statue. In other words, the feet of the statue will be operational upon the whole world. And so when Yahushua returns, there will be the feet made of clay, made of iron. There will be a kingdom that Yahushua will directly destroy. And after this specific kingdom is directly destroyed, what will happen to the whole statue? It will be destroyed as well. In other words, man's kingdoms will topple as well. And after it topples, the wind will sweep it away, leaving no trace. But the rock, what's going to happen to the rock? It's going to become huge into a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is the kingdom that Yahuwah God will establish through Yahusha HaMashiach. And so Yahusha is going to directly attack the clay made of, the feet made of clay and iron. Who are they? What do they represent? Let's go back to Daniel chapter 244 to 45. It says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So prior to Yahushua returning and setting up the kingdom of God, because God is going to set up his kingdom. When will that take place? The Bible says in the time of those kings. Well, who are the kings referred to there? Those kings could not be Nebuchadnezzar. He's already dead. Could not be Alexander the Great. It could not be the kings of the past, right? But the kings who are ruling the world at that time when Yahusha returns. Well, how can we identify these kings that will be destroyed when Yahusha returns? Let's go back to Daniel uh, 2 42 to 44. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay. So this kingdom will be partly strong and part, partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So according to the prophecy, according to the interpretation given by the prophet Daniel, when it says in the time of those kings, which gives us a setting, a time setting, right? What kings were he referring to? 
The Bible also says the feet, which is part of the fourth kingdom. What's the fourth kingdom again? Rome. The feet, which is part of Rome, is composed of how many toes? How many toes? Usually. Some people have nine toes. But usually how many toes do people have? Ten. And so there are ten little kingdoms associated with Rome partly iron, and partly clay. When Yahushua returns, those who will be ruling the world is an empire associated with Rome that has 10 kingdoms. But the Bible says when Yahushua comes, he will crush all those kingdoms. It's interesting. And so this tells us something about what must happen before Yahushua returns. So what can we expect to happen according to the interpretation of Daniel during the end times that will bring Yahusha to earth and will destroy these kingdoms? Well, when we look at the prophecy before Yahusha returns, there must be a future Roman empire, right? Because the Bible says there's only four kingdoms, the last one being Rome. And when Yahusha returns, he will destroy the four toads, four sub-kingdoms, if you will, that is associated somehow with Rome. And so what can we expect to happen right before the return of our King Yahushua? We can expect something happening, a mixing of different things, a mixing of different religious ideas, a mixing of different nations to form a mighty empire that will represent the world prior to the return of our King Yahushua. Brethren, that's just chapter 2. When we get to chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, Daniel, he adds the details. What we have so far is a skeletal structure. In the future Bible studies, we're going to fill in that skeletal structure so that we can identify that final empire before the return of our king, Yahusha. This is why studying Daniel is a must for us to understand the events that will take place before the end of the world, but also the events of the book of Revelation. And when we progress through the book of Daniel, we're going to put all these things together and everything is going to be so crystal clear. But what we need to understand is this. Yahuwah is in control of all things. He's the one who permits all things to unfold, including that which is happening in Israel, in Rome, and also in that area within its vicinity. And so we need to be watchful of, of current events. We need to be watchful of how different nations are using their authority and coming up with their agendas, because all this would lead somehow to a future empire associated with Rome, spiritually, physically, perhaps both, because that will happen before the return of our King Yahushua. And so when Daniel was giving this dream and giving the interpretation of the dream, uh, what did King Nebuchadnezzar do? Daniel 2, 46, 47. Uh, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So 
Uh, needless to say, King Nebuchadnezzar was in awe, right? He was shocked. He was so shocked, he fell prostrate before Daniel. He was the king. Daniel is a slave. But he fell at his feet and he lay prostrate before Daniel. And he praised the God of Daniel. So God gets the glory. God is praised above all. And because of this, what is the blessing for Daniel, the servant of God? Daniel 2, 48, 49. And the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. And so what happens to Daniel and his friends? They get promoted, right? Gifts were, were lavished upon Daniel. He was given a high position, basically second only to the king. And his friends also were given a high position, administrators over the province of Babylon, right? And think about this. Look at the blessing Daniel and his friends received, right? Think about this. Just 24 hours before this, what were they doing? What was, what was about to happen to them just 24 hours before this? Just the day before this, they were supposed to be what? Killed. What a difference a day makes. But who made the difference in that day? Yahuwah. And let this be a lesson that we must learn. Today can be a day filled with trouble. In fact, let's say today can be a day when you do not see any hope at all. Because when Daniel and his friends were about to be killed, I mean, they had no answer. They had no idea. They had no idea what that dream was about. But they know God. And so even if they had no answer at the moment, even though the hours were dark, they prayed to Yahuwah Abba and placed their hope in him. That's all it took. See, this is what Yahuwah God specializes in. He turns darkness into light. He turns problems into solutions. And he turns trouble into opportunity for us to be blessed and for God to be glorified. And so if we're going to learn something about in Daniel chapter 2, it's not really about the statue. It's not really about the events that will take place. Because it's going to happen whether we like it or not, right? Even if we don't know about the statue and the prophecy, even if we don't know about Rome and what's going to happen in the future, do you think it's going to make really a big difference? No. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. It's going to happen whether we know it or not, right? And so if we're going to learn anything from Daniel chapter 2 is... Yahuwah God can make a big difference in a small amount of time. And if you trust him, whatever you're facing right now, brethren, Yahuwah God will cause it to work together for good. That's the Yahuwah Abba that we worship and serve. Let us stand, brethren, and we shall pray. Everlasting Abba, yes. most holy and gracious and almighty Allahim, thank you for your blessings upon our life. Amen. Again and again, as we study your holy book, yes. we find evidence 
that indeed in times of trouble, times of pain, yes. times of tribulation, when it seems there is no hope, there's always hope, so long as you are our God. Amen. Because we are your sons and daughters. Yes, we know we will never be defeated. Yes, yes, we know we will have our share of dark times, difficult moments in life. Yes, and so we will remember this story. Yes. A true story that teaches us to place our hope in you. Yes. Father, when after this prayer is concluded, you will notice some of your sons and daughters kneeling before you in humble supplication. Yes. When you see them surrendering themselves completely to you, yes, because they understand that they are powerless, absolutely powerless yes. to rectify the present predicament. May you respond from heaven. Yes. Begin by giving them confidence, yes. by giving them a solid trust in you. Yes. And continue, please, to work out your plan, yes. your plan of deliverance, that you might be glorified. Yes. And we can continue to share our faith and teach others all about you. Amen. Loving Abba, remember your people, yes. how we need your help, yes. your supernatural help. Yes. Your miracles that we believe can come to fruition even during these last days. Amen. Our loving Mashiach, yes. you are the rock. Oh, you are our rock, yes. our Mashiach. We find comfort and strength in you. We yes. know when all is said and done, yes. it will be you sitting on that throne yes. as appointed by Abba. Amen. May we always look up to you yes. we know in this life we will be required to make sacrifices yes. but these are nothing so long as we can be by your side yes. especially as you return and we can be with you forevermore Amen. strengthen our faith and increase our strength O loving mashiach yes. that we can complete and finish our race Amen. we believe loving abba that you have listened to our prayers yes. and that you have turned our impossible situations yes. into opportunities for you to be glorified most of all Amen. we ask everything loving abba in the name of our lord and savior yahusha hamashiach amen, amen.